Welcome, Capital Razors. Jeremiah Boucher went down pretty hard in the crash, but he bounced back strongly and he adapted to new asset classes and got into fund creation. Are you guys ready to raise? Shout out to Invest Next, our portal of choice in the Family Office Club, which is the largest association in the capital raising industry with over 3,000 ultra wealthy investors globally. Get a massive $2,000 discount on memberships by messaging me on LinkedIn or mention the Capital Razor Show when you talk to familyoffices.com with that. It's Capital Razor Show episode 296, and it starts now. Rock and roll. I got Jeremiah Boucher on the Capital Razor Show. Welcome, my friend. How you doing, brother? Hey, thanks, Ruben. Doing well. That's good to have you, man. We met at the Family Office Club at one of these events. We can't even remember where, if it was in Newport or New York. Anyways, good to have you. The Capital Raisers Show Season 4, powered by the Family Office Club, which we are both part of, or at least go visit them frequently. So let's start with the audience in mind that hasn't met Jeremiah Boucher. Tell us a little bit about your background, how you got involved in commercial real estate, and what kind of asset classes. How'd you get involved with all of this? So Ruben, I'm a just entrepreneur, I guess, capital raise, alternative commercial real estate investor, and we're bootstrapping it all the way. So Got into single family house investing in, in 2001, 2002, and rode that wave in Vegas. And that's where I'm based out of and then lost it all, like I'm sure some of your friends did. And I know we talked about investing in the past here in the Southwest. That, that really wiped me out. But in the meantime, in 2007, 2008, I knew when everybody was a realtor, I didn't want to be one. I didn't like it. I didn't like the residential game. And I knew I had to do something different. So I, my advantage or my niche was I really dug myself into manufactured housing. I bought some cheesy course online. And I just learned it. I called the guys that taught it. I figured it out. And then I said, you know what? What can I do to add value? And they said, go out there and go find deals. So I was in my early or mid-20s. And I went out there and just hustled and sourced about 100 deals over the next decade. And then was able to take all my fees, take the equity, and roll it into my own company. And then was able to start running my own syndications and in turn evolving into self-storage assets, a little bit of industrial and mobile home parks, and just trying to ride the wave of being in front of the curve where I'm going to anticipate where the new, I guess, inefficient market is in real estate, be in it, maximize value, improve the assets, sell them or roll them all up into a bigger portfolio. And then ideally keep riding that train. And, and if it's time to pivot, then I pivot. And that's when I went into self-storage six, seven years ago. And right now, that's my main focus is kind of aggregating storage up and working to sell it to a big public REIT. I've heard some rumblings in the industry that self-storage is getting a little bit more challenging. I think everything is getting a little bit more challenging. So people are kind of diversifying into new asset classes. What are you experiencing in self-storage right now? Yeah, and I read the REITs, the reports, their quarterly earnings and watch their calls. There's 20% year-over-year revenue growth for two years during COVID. And being in real estate, that's just not sustainable. 40% revenue growth in two years is insane. So now it's reverting back to the mean. It's getting back to the normal 3 4 5% revenue growth, 3% NOI growth. That's it. It's just getting back to a, just a consistent, stable, normal industry. So it's, it's funny how Wall Street works, and I guess in, in terms how sensationalist media works, where if you don't have double-digit gains, everything's falling apart. It's not true. It's just not exploding. And I think it's a little more sustainable. And with the cost of debt, it's just something that you got to be very careful where you buy. You got to be a great operator. You got to add value, provide good products. 
it's going back to the norm. Cool. Is self-storage where you plan on staying over the next, let's say, five to 10 years? I think it's a three to five year play max. So what other asset classes are you thinking about getting involved with? I really like small bay industrial. I mean, we're building three nice. different, yeah, different little small bay warehouses now and in the future. I would love to be the the WeWork or the co-working space of industrial. And that's my focus is to develop the proof of concept. And we got six different projects in total after next year. And just getting really mastering the management, mastering the leasing, mastering just the marketing and kind of cutting out the middleman of no broker really wants to deal with the small guy, the small tenant, the small contractor, the, the small paint guy. And we want to meet, make sure we can serve those guys. And we feel it's a really good asset class to continue to raise rents over time with inflation you know, hurting everybody. So give us a SWOT analysis on that asset class, strengths, weaknesses, oppositions, and threats. What's really good? What's going to be challenging for, for you to get into that space? The strengths are the wall, weighted average lease term, shorter lease term, so you can increase your rents. That's a positive. Second is there's low supply, so there's high demand, low supply. I think it's still 60 to 70% of all employees are are employed by small businesses, and that's not going away in our entrepreneurship culture, and they need a place to go. I think also low CapEx, so there's very low capital expenditures if you build or own the right type of warehouse product. And I think some of the negatives are going to be challenging to operate and scale, where you get, you're going to have defaults, you're going to have tenants that create a mess, either you better protect yourself environmentally, there might be some changes in insurance laws, especially if you're down south with all the storms. So it's, you're just going to have to be more savvy operator and make sure you develop something or pivot to what you're offering the customer in terms of smaller or bigger spaces, and then you'll be able to ride it out. But yeah, it's, it's more hands-on for sure. So walk me through the evolution of the timeline that you've been involved. You started with single family, and then you went to what, and then what, and then what, and to, to today. I wrote a book for the plug. It's uh, Finding Your Edge, How to Win at the Game of Commercial Real Estate. So I just talked to my about my story, and Audible's coming out here in a week or so. I did nice. it all myself. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm glad I got that done. It really was single family from 01 to 07. That was when the crash in 08, but I was in mobile home parks from 08 to to today, but 15, 16, when I broke off on my own, then I did my small syndications from 15 to 18, did a few storage deals, learned a proof of concept, and then in 2019, started to roll up the funds. That's where I started to develop my first fund. It's a smaller fund at $15 million, just a fixed fund for one-year capital raise, two-year deployment, and then we went out there and bought it was something like $40 million in assets. And I had just had a big win on that where we, we sold an eight-pack of mobile home parks in Pittsburgh, made a nice $8 million profit for the fund in over just three years. So that was a, a big win to get an exit done right now. As mobile home parks, I started to sell those off in that 2019-2020, right before covid I was ramping up in storage. So I went out and bought a lot of these smaller storage facilities and tertiary markets. And that's when I also started to start develop and buy some small bay warehouse. Cool. So times have been changing. Obviously, to be in single family today is very different than it was in 03. Possibly there are some similarities. But for guys that are listening in or ladies out there doing flips or starting in small multifamily or scaling into syndication, like if you could go back, what advice would you give to them or to your earlier self as you're kind of expanding and evolving as a commercial real estate investor? It really speaks to the title of my book, Find Your Edge. 
find that competitive angle that you have. And you got to be doing something better than someone else or have something unique. If you speak another language, focus on those customers. If you're going to raise capital from them or for your customers or tenants. For us now with Small Bay, our angle is skip the middleman. Make Go out there and go directly on social media. Market the small businesses geographically around your sites. Make it an easy process. Don't convolute it where there's a massive lease and it's really confusing for your, your customer. Get Make it easier. That's not the industry for industrial. That's just not how it works. And with self-storage, it was remotely manage the facilities. We don't need a, a manager in every single facility. And we can buy facilities that are out of urban markets or core markets. So I would tell someone just you got to have some competitive angle. If you buy land and flip it, make sure you know how to at least find people that are motivated to sell land or there's some angle where you can analyze land quickly where you know where there's wetlands or topography or issues with setbacks. So you just I think you just find your edge and then you're going to be able to scale on that and don't delude yourself that you can just be like everybody else and you're going to win. So what about pivoting, adapting, and evolving? Because I've seen a lot of guys, I was back around in the 06, 07, 08 days. I saw guys that were doing wholesaling and they had to switch to new markets because there was a lot of competition. And then they got into different asset classes and moved into different markets. What can the aspiring commercial real estate syndicator expect in terms of like, hey, am I just going to stay in multifamily for the next 10 years or... Do you think that they're up for a rude awakening and they're going to have to be able to, to be ready to change? Well, I would say, yeah, you better be ready to change. It's a good question. The way I framed it in my mind is, are you asset specific or are you region specific or do you just bounce to both? And that to me, I started out as being asset specific where I went and bought mobile home parks all over the country where I just looked at pretty much a homogenous asset class. It was a box. It was not a pretty box but it was a land lease community with a box on it. And I went out there and made some mistakes and had a lot of big wins too. So I would say it's got to be tailored to the individual's resources and what their predispositions or their nature is. Like, what do you want to get yourself into? There's so many angles with investment. But I would say at this time for me, I would be more region specific. I think more than ever in tough markets and you live through the rough markets, you really got to understand your region. And I always say real estate is a market within a market. So even if you see self-storage is not doing well or office is not doing well or warehouse, it is in some market. So you better know your market first, and then you better be able to deliver on the product that's going to serve that market. And you might not be able to scale as fast, but I think you're going to protect the downside a lot more. So master your market and then have, I wouldn't go more than two or three asset classes I think it gets very difficult to to scale on that. And that's where I would focus my energy on someone that's scaling up. Okay. What about the evolution of your capital raising? How was it in the early days? What have you learned along the way? What kind of advice would you give to a younger Jeremiah about what they need to be doing or what you need to be doing in order to scale at your capital raise? I think it takes time. You got to be patient. For me, I'm not like some of the guys I've seen recently scale so quickly with apartment and multifamily investing. For me, it was just one syndication at a time, one partnership at a time. In the beginning, it was a 50-50 split, and I just gave my partners preferred returns, and they paid. They got all the profits until we paid them back. But what I made sure I did is I made sure I had a lot of skin in the game, and I was really hands-on with the operations this is just me, and I wasn't very comfortable raising capital for the first few years because I didn't want to lose people's money, and I wasn't really raised to raise money from other people with my parents. 
So for me, I had to make sure that I was a good steward of the money. So what I had to do is one, I made sure I had my house on the line. I had my credit on the line, my own money on the line. And I made sure that my time and energy was focused on those investments. So my advice to the young guy is build a track record. Don't be so concerned about so much so fast. Get two, three, four projects under your belt. Make sure you understand how the models work and how your partners are going to get paid and you deliver them results. And then you understand the business model and can you really scale that? There's no sense of scaling a fund where I see some crazy guys go out there and they're raising funds, but where's the true business model? I mean, that you're not raising funds to, to get money. You're, you're getting assets. You're raising funds to go run a business and, and get investor returns. So master the asset class in the business and then scale up if you're going to really go hard in this business. What's the future of your capital raising look like? Are there any new things that you're trying to integrate and implement into your business right now as you're scaling? I've had to sacrifice the GP side of things or the, the carry or the, the sponsor's interest, meaning it's getting smaller and smaller because I want to scale and I want to target larger family offices, larger investors, larger institutions. For me, it's offering tiers of shares. Anyone that invests over $5 million gets an 80-20 with a 9-pref. Anyone over $1 million gets an 80-20 with an 8-pref. And then it scales down from there. So creating classes of shares with aggregated groups or with larger investors, that was an evolution for me. And the other evolution is is trying to be a little more conservative on the returns because as I've scaled, it's so hard to find great deals in volume and continue to find juicy margins on those deals because you're just trying to do it with scale and with such an overhead to deliver. It's easier with a hand, one or two or a handful of assets. <laughs> you can find it, those deals a year, but trying to find 20 of them is tough. And those are projected returns on 506Cs that you're talking about? Correct. Yeah, if I do the accredited. I always, always got to give that disclaimer in case there's a oh, regulator yeah. listening in. I know <laughs> that we got probably a little bit more intense scrutiny than, than the regular multifamily or other commercial show because we're talking about raising capital, so we want to stay compliant. Hey, so I want to talk real quick because I know we're going to keep it short today. How about we go into partnership creation and scaling a business from a team perspective? Because I think a lot of people think like, I want to get into a GP and own a large commercial real estate asset. And they don't realize that they're going to partner with so many people and have to manage virtual assistants and get a COO and some other people to help them scale and everything else. And they're in for a rude awakening if they're not prepared to lead people. Would you agree with that statement? Tell me about oh. your experiences there. Oh, yeah. There's a big difference between an investor and a business owner or visionary or a CEO. Huge difference. In the beginning, I was a pure real estate investor that could find great deals and execute on some value-add strategies and exit and make some money to the partners. But uh, over time, I realized in any way of scaling capital raising or deal volume or in construction and development and operations, you better have a, a tight team. So I, I mean, I, I feel I'm getting a lot better at it over the last two years, but my activities are leading and guiding. And what that means and the feedback even from my team over the last few years is clarity and communication. And that clarity is where are we going together? What are we striving for? And with that clarity, I had to refine and I had to strip away a lot of things that were really wasting our time. And I'm still doing that to this day. A lot of decisions that I, I wasn't clear myself on where the company was going. So years ago, making some investments that really aren't the core strategy 
which diverts resources away from all the other team. And we really have a, we only have a limited resources for all your team, anyone here. So it's getting super clear on what those metrics are and how we're going to hit those and how we're going to measure those. And then how I can delegate and elevate these core team members that I incentivize with GP structure so that we meet these deliverables and we meet this overall vision for the company. But I would say, Ruben, yeah, there's just four key players, at least in my company, in terms of the actual strategy of, of adding value in commercial real estate. I mean, you got to have acquisitions down. You got to have fundraising down, which includes accounting. You got to have operations down where you're managing it right. And you got to have construction, capex, and development if you're going to improve these assets. So like those four people, if you don't have a key leader or quarterback in those departments, you're deluding yourself that you can handle it all and they're going to be able to scale. Cool. Lots of fire in this so far. All right, let's jump into the lightning round. I'll start with best vacation. The best vacation is the long ones. Just just nice to just get off the grid. So Brazil, Japan, not one spot. It's just bouncing around and doing it for a month and a half. Are you one of these guys that plans everything or just kind of go and wherever you end up is cool? I got like just like a handful of initiatives and that's it. So it's not a, (laughs) I know what five things I'm going to do and then I let it evolve. Favorite book of any kind? Philosophical book. I love The Fountainhead. It's a really good one by Ayn Rand. That's from a philosophical standpoint. From an autobiography, and for on Audible, I love Andre Agassi's Open. That's just a great story about him and his life and his mindset around just competing in tennis. I guess my favorite, well, I'm jumping to my favorite movie. I guess my favorite movie is Fight Club. All right. How much of your success do you attribute to mindset? 80-20. And of course, you gotta have the right plan, you gotta have the right strategy, but you gotta buckle down and do the work. But if you're chasing the sunset in the wrong direction, you're never gonna make it. I think it's 80% is mindset. Cool, how long do you wanna live? 100. Best way to raise capital from your perspective, short answer. Networking groups. Can you tell me about a moment that changed the trajectory of your life? Hitting bottom while dropping out of college. What would you need in order to 10X your business? Leadership, I would say, elevating a few key leaders, two more key leaders in the company. Awesome. What is a capital raising mistake you see people doing? Too much, too fast, too much hype. I want real substance and I want real proof in the in the actual execution of the investment. Love it. Do your spiritual philosophies have anything to do with your success in business? For sure, for sure. I would say concisely it's Whatever you put out in the world, the energy that you put out is what you get back. (laughs) That's fantastic. All right, a couple more questions. Have you ever experienced a miracle or had a near-death experience? Yeah, I've just been on some tight spaces, climbing some really (laughs) bad, bad mountains that I I got real close to feeling like, oh man, this is, there's no movie soundtrack going on in the background. I got to figure out a way to get out of this thing. And then some close calls, just being a, a knucklehead in high schools. Yeah, I believe there is, There's a reason we do what we do. And I think every challenge makes us create who we are. Cool. Last question brought to you by Shanna Amigo, one of our great listeners. She would like to know what impact would you like to leave in the world? I love nature. My mom's a biologist. I grew up as a Boy Scout. I want to leave parks and libraries. I want people to be outdoors. A lot of outdoor involvement. I love that answer. All right, cool, man. Shout out to the Capital Razor Nation. Thanks for tuning in. Please leave us a five-star written review. Shout out to our sponsors, Family Office Club and PitchDex.com. All right, Jeremiah, how does the audience get a hold of you, my friend? PatriotHoldings.com or check the book out, uh, Finding Your Edge on Amazon. 
Sweet. And any parting words of wisdom for the aspiring commercial real estate investor as they scale on their journey? It's going to get tough. So buckle down, get good at the fundamentals. And if you're not fully committed, don't pretend to go do it. Just go do something else. Like it's going to take every bit of you right here. This isn't a part-time gig. All right. Hold on. I got to stop and just explore that a little bit more because one of the reasons I did not want to become an entrepreneur and I feared success was because I was afraid that I was going to have to work so damn hard that I would be trapped in this perpetual cycle of never being able to relax and chill out and go drink a beer in Sedona and take a week off. Now, I've recently studied some Napoleon Hill material where he's interviewing Andrew Carnegie. And Andrew Carnegie says that you have to not just work smart, but you do have to work your ass off really like next level hard. And I didn't want to accept that as a fact. Do you find that most successful people do actually have to work that hard? Or is it true that you can kind of live the who, not how and delegate stuff and, and work smart and not have to work that crazy? I don't think they're diametric, Ruben. I think if you're an active investor and you want this, what we're talking about here, capital raising lifestyle and be the GP, there's a sacrifice and a price you got to pay. Obviously, an LP is different, and that's a price you got to do your homework, and that's less of a price you have to pay. But to concisely answer the question, Ruben, it's that, your head. You're not working hard. You're thinking. You're processing. You're leading. We can live the lifestyle of being in Sedona, enjoying the outdoors, and having a beer and relaxing, but you better be razor sharp. I've never seen anybody 100 million plus that's a slouch. They're very, very good at what they do in a very specific niche. Woo. All right. Cool, man. Well, thanks for joining us on the show, man. This has been a blast, dude. I look forward to yeah. hanging out with you and following your progress. I appreciate that. I appreciate the platform, buddy. You bet, brother.